He may seem like a mild-mannered engineer until you install an HVAC system improperly. Then the whole turning green Hulk shirt ripping thing happens, and it's not pretty. Here's Bill Spohn. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Building HVAC Science Podcast, which our goal to create better, more knowledgeable HVAC and building performance technicians by helping the two professions to better understand each other with the ultimate goal of making customers happy in the homes they live in and the buildings they work in. Buildings. Buildings and air quality. Air quality and COVID-19. Today we speak with Bill Bonfleth, who has a long and distinguished career as a professor of architectural engineering at Penn State University. He's also done consulting and worked for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. A couple of gems of the quotations coming out of this conversation include, making building IAQ better is a long-term process. Another gem, we had all the answers before the COVID-19 pandemic, we just didn't implement them. So Bill will be talking today from a perspective of true knowledge of the subject area. In early 2020, Bill was tapped by ASHRAE to become the chair of a rare emergency task force to address managing IAQ in buildings considering the COVID-19 pandemic. We'll hear from Bill as he discusses how one puts together and manages a 120-person task force with people from multiple countries in such a short period of time to produce a body of work that has been very influential and important. Bill also discusses several of the myths that needed to be busted along the way. He'll also share with us his passion for music and the parallels that his mastery of music has with his mastery of engineering, the fundamentals applied creatively. He talks about the art and the craft. In the show notes, we have some links to resources mentioned. Let's get on with this interesting conversation with Bill Bonfleth of Penn State University talking about the COVID pandemic and did it teach us anything new about IAQ? Mr. Bill Bonfleth, how are you doing, Bill? I'm great. How are you? I'm pretty well, thanks. And you have a very interesting background. And our topic today is about did the COVID pandemic really teach us anything new about IAQ? You're in a pretty unique situation to talk about this. But first, let's give the listeners who might not be familiar with your name some background, please. I'm a professor of architectural engineering at Penn State. I've been there for a long time, since 1994. Before that, I was a consulting engineer for a few years full-time. And before that, I worked for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers in a facilities engineering research laboratory. I'm a mechanical engineer. I got all of my degrees at the University of Illinois. And aside from paying work, I've been president of ASHRAE in 2013-14, so lots of activities in ASHRAE. And I was also the chair of ASHRAE's Epidemic Task Force from March of 2020 through June of this year when we shut that down and transferred what it was doing to a permanent standing committee, the Environmental Health Committee. Is that a unique thing for ASHRAE to have a epidemic task force? Is there any, anything like that in recent history? There's nothing recent that comes to mind. This was an emergency situation and ASHRAE wanted to do something rapidly, so they asked me to put together a group. I think you'd have to go back a long way to find something that was remotely similar, and it really wasn't quite as urgent. The first energy standard that ASHRAE developed was done 
in a very short period of time with a group that was pulled together, but they certainly weren't dealing with the matters of life and death like we were at the time that this group was formed. Could you speak towards how do you do that when someone asks you to pull together a task force? How does that come about? What is kind of the major steps you took? I was given pretty much carte blanche to put this together, and I did try to think in a concentrated way because of the timeline. What are the main questions that a task force would have to answer? Certainly what we were being expected to do was to give the public good guidance on how to reduce their risk from airborne transmission of COVID. So I looked around in my network and within ASHRAE for experts on the various technologies like ventilation, filtration, air cleaning, and also some of the subject matter experts on different types of buildings, because I assume that there would be some differences that would be important between residential buildings, of course, as a class, and retail and commercial and schools, especially. But we covered some other things, too, including transportation. So we had a group of experts. Each one was assigned to lead a team. And to deal with the issue of the need for speed, we bypassed all of the normal ASHRAE committee structure. And I told them to go out and find whoever they thought they needed to populate their team and to put things together within their scope. And when they had something that was ready, bring it to the whole group. And the task force that I appointed would deal with things as steering committees. What we really had was about 120 people, a few more than that, working on these various teams that were formed But the core task force was more like 15 people, roughly. And then we met every couple of weeks, and these smaller groups often met every week for quite a while. Were people drawn only from the U.S., or were there international participation? They were international. We had members from Europe, Pavel Vargatsky, for example, from Technical University of Denmark, who's very well known in indoor air quality. And we had some ASHRAE members from. Asia, for example, Chandra Shekhar from National University of Singapore, another very well-known expert. So we weren't looking just within the U.S. and Canada. It was whoever was that stable to help us carry out these tasks. Rapid. Now, you're, you said a professor of architecture? Architectural engineering. Architectural engineering. Is it a normal thing for architectural engineers to be looking at the air quality of a space? Sure. That's the difference between architecture and architectural engineering. We're an ABET accredited engineering curriculum. There are only maybe about 25 departments like ours that are are accredited, but we deal with all of the engineering aspects of buildings. So within my department, we have a construction management group, a lighting and electrical systems group, structural systems group, and the one that I'm in is mechanical systems. So We're really, in my group, mechanical engineers who deal specifically with the systems and buildings as opposed to being mechanical engineers who are diffused into a big mechanical engineering department, which is the more normal situation. So we have a five-year curriculum in our department, which means that from the educational point of view, we can give the undergraduates a lot more specialized training. And also because we are focused on buildings, our curriculum is really tailored to the needs of someone who's going to go into the construction industry in some 
way, either as a designer or as an engineer for a contractor or as a researcher or academic. So as the situation emerged in March of 2020, what myths did you need to dispel throughout the course of the tenure of this committee, the over two-year tenure of this committee? Yeah, well, of course, we got embroiled in the first big myth, which is that very few diseases are transmitted by the airborne route. And that actually caused a lot of contention. It seems to be the case that engineers are more willing to accept strong circumstantial evidence as a motivation for taking protective action. In the medical circles, they call that the precautionary principle. I had never heard of that term until I got involved in the pandemic, but we just call that safe factors of safety or engineering conservatism. So in March of 2020, ASHRAE and also the Riva group in Europe came out with statements that, well, we're pretty certain there could be airborne transmission, so we ought to do something about it. We stated it a little differently than that, but we essentially invoked the precautionary principle. And it took a long time for public health authorities to get to the same point while a lot of people got sick and died. So that was the first thing. We've dealt with pretty much every myth you could imagine, like viruses are too small to be captured by fiber filters. Two problems there. One, it's untrue just on the face of it, because most people don't understand the way diffusional capture works in fiber filters. Really small particles can be captured by running into fibers of a filter. It's not really sieving. So that was the first thing. The second was that the viruses that we were concerned about are actually in particles that start out as respiratory aerosol. So they're in saliva that dehydrates, leaving behind some solids with viruses in it. And they're much larger than a virus. So we're not dealing with only 0.1 micron particles, but particles that could be as large as five or 10 microns, which are pretty easy to capture. So that was one of the important ones that we had to deal with is that filters can work and fan filter units can work. And I think we probably also had to dispel a lot of myths associated with the idea that germicidal ultraviolet disinfection is something new and untested when it really is a technology that's over 100 years old and, and was used to deal with viral epidemics in schools in the 1930s. It was first tested on measles and other childhood diseases in schools in, in the Philadelphia area and elsewhere in the late 1930s by Wells, Wells, and Wilder. So those were some of the main ones. I suppose another one that was very interesting was the idea that recirculated air is inherently bad. That seemed to be a fairly strong position for a lot of those in Europe. But if you look at air conditioning systems in the U.S., the typical office system and a lot of school systems probably at full capacity are recirculating 60 to 80 percent of the air. Recirculation can be bad as far as redistributing contaminants in a building if you're not doing anything to stop them. Recirculation combined with high-efficiency filtration is actually what we do primarily in healthcare. If you look at healthcare standards, they require fairly high levels of recirculation in infection control spaces combined with high-efficiency filters, everything from MERV-14 all the way on up to HEPA. So those were some of the main technical issues that I think came out. There are other things that aren't really missed that we had to deal with, like the ambiguous nature of proof for the performance of a lot of 
air cleaning technologies that just isn't the body of test procedures and certifications around that we would have liked to have seen. And that's been an ongoing issue. And maybe one more thing that comes to mind is, do we really know what the clean air delivery rates or the ventilation rates are that will maximize reduction of risk? And if you look at the literature on ventilation and infection control, what it will say is that we know that higher ventilation rates reduce risk of infection, but we don't have enough high quality evidence to actually establish minimum rates. And that's an ongoing problematic discussion about how many air changes per hour of ventilation should I have or how much ventilation per person. And that's an issue we're going to have to deal with, I think, better after the pandemic is over. Right now, we're just trying to be conservative. And I could add one more thing to that, which is throughout the pandemic, we've had to deal with the problem of getting locked in on one kind of control as the way to solve all of our problems. So we can get really concerned about whether there's enough ventilation or enough filtration. But when you look at the overall risk management process, that's still only one layer in the total. And we do a lot of other things that also help to get us to the best possible place. And we don't have to rely on ventilation and filtration as our only protection. We could be wearing masks. People can get vaccinated. There are other things we can do to design buildings to make risk lower. So that's a potpourri of things that came up. It's been two and a half years of dealing with all sorts of questions and arguments from all quarters. And it's been very educational for me to have to do that. And you have a very nice way of delivering this information. So thank you. I've watched some of your other that's from two and a half years of answering those questions. My answers might not have been quite so well-formed. So succinct. In 2020. So you didn't mention fomite transmission or transmission via surfaces. Okay. So yeah, that is a myth. That's a good one to bring up. Early on, of course, was a bonanza for hand sanitizer manufacturers and anyone who did surface disinfection. And if a child would show up infected at school, they'd close down for two days to do deep cleaning because of the concern about fomite transmission, and we were all being told to wash our hands and use hand sanitizer. And really, we've been looking for clear evidence of significant fomite transmission throughout the pandemic. And this particular disease doesn't seem to transmit that that way very effectively. I haven't seen anything that convinces me that all of the effort we've put into cleaning has really been helpful for SARS-CoV-2. But that said, there are diseases that have a high level of risk from my transmission. And maybe that's something else for perspective is that going forward, we have to remember not to fight the last war and what we do as a follow-on to COVID. We need to look at more broadly at what are all the ways that some of these diseases could be transmitted indoors and come up with improvements to building design and operation that will address whatever comes along because the next disease may have a different profile. When I travel, I still see restaurants and hotels and venues talking about their deep cleaning activities. And I wonder, like, were those stickers and placards and things put up and they're not doing it? Or are they really still engaging in this activity? It's useless for this purpose. I get the impression that they just haven't gotten around to taking them down. Good. <laughs> We have much less entry of staff into hotel rooms. That started and has never returned. I found that it wasn't that hard to just make my own bed every morning while I was 
on the road, and it's nice to <laughs> sometimes to not have to wait for us. Was it consulting the Corps of Engineers or your education that allowed you to make beds? That's <laughs> <laughs> <was> my mother. <laughs> Going way back in the education. One of my chores. I was thinking about that when I was at a hotel in Chicago as I was speaking there last week, and there was a sign in the elevator, maximum capacity four. And I'm thinking, how long does the average elevator ride last? And there was some analysis early on that showed that the amount of exposure, given the short time, was probably not very important. But think about all the people packed together in the elevator lobby waiting for a car because you could only put four people on it. That was probably much higher risk than the risk that you'd be exposed to in the elevator ride. So our intuition is often not a very helpful way to decide what to do. So is this set a new track for your work at Penn State or sidetracked other work you were doing? I've spent an awful lot of time dealing with outreach, with education and communication to all sorts of audiences, from public to public health experts to government agencies. So over 200 presentations and close to 200 interviews, podcasts, and so forth. And that's obviously time that I could have spent maybe trying to write more proposals to take advantage of the short-term funding. But mostly it's just been added time on top of my regular job. I'm fairly comfortable with working long hours, at least I haven't gotten tired of it yet. And this was such a compelling task and an opportunity to do some good. I didn't mind getting involved in it, but it's taken me really into the policy arena. I'm becoming convinced that that's going to be very important going forward because some of the things that we need to do to improve the way buildings are designed and operated are going to take changes to standards, changes to building codes, maybe even a tolerable level of federal regulation of indoor air, whatever that might mean. For some, it's none, and for others, it's a lot. But I think it's pretty clear that if there's no regulation, it's hard to get some of the progress that I think needs to be made. So those contacts with White House and Congress and government agencies have been really interesting for me. I did some of that before as president of ASHRAE, but that's really ramped up in the last couple of years. Earlier on, when we talked about one of the myths of the viruses are too small to be captured, you mentioned the fan filter. Is that the Corsi-Rosenthal box cube? Any kind of fan filter. I have commercial HEPA filter units in my house. You can maybe see one over my shoulder here on the floor, just the top of it. Circular one? Yeah. Anything like that. The Corsi-Rosenthal box has been a real game changer in terms of educating the public about how simple it is really to improve indoor air quality and in some ways and has made it visible to them. So I think that's terrific. I don't know that long term, I would hope that in the future, everyone would be making their own air filters. But right now, it's been a great tool to help get the public on board with the idea that indoor air quality needs to be better. We had met informally on LinkedIn, and then we met in person this summer at something called Building Science Summer Camp. Give me your perspective on that, like how long you've been going and what have you gained or given through that activity? I'm actually pretty much of a newbie to summer camp. I knew about it and heard about it for a long time, but I hadn't figured out that all you had to do if you really wanted to get an invite was to ask Joe. And if he said yes, that was okay. So the first one that I went to was the 20th anniversary summer camp, which I guess would have been four years ago. It was one of the last ones before the pandemic. But I've known many of the people who attend 
for a long time. And it was great to go there and find that group of people all in one place because it really is an environment for a few days, brings together great minds with a lot of different kinds of experience and perspective. And, and I think that's really one of the benefits of it, that it helps to create that community and it transfers knowledge across silos that often don't communicate with one another. The quality of the educational programs is terrific, what we do during the day, and then all the networking after hours is an added 150% bonus to get to know to some of those people who you then stay in touch with afterwards and can call whenever you need some advice or expert assistance. And I saw one of those transfer across knowledge silos happen like real time with Dr. Stephanie Taylor. Did she work on the committee also? Yeah, Stephanie was the MD on our task force, and she was mainly responsible for literature review. So we asked her to pull together that sort of information. And she's an ASHRAE Distinguished Lecturer, so she's very well known within ASHRAE already in discussing these ideas of wellness and how the indoor environment affects people's health. So she's always been an interesting person to have around. We had a lot of discussions about humidification. Stephanie is very keen on humidity control, but there are a lot of practical issues to that, which is the kind of thing that comes out in discussions at, at camp. Well, it would be great if we could humidify all buildings to that level, but some buildings of a certain vintage and certain locations, it's not a very good idea. So I think that there's been knowledge transfer both ways over time because of that. Yeah, nothing seems to be absolute when you bring together buildings and people. No, I'm a big fan of humidification. I've done it in my own house for a long time. and I have paid careful attention to how much I can humidify under what outdoor conditions, because I do think it is better for health and for comfort. But within the context of the task force, when we looked at what could we gain by spending resources on humidifying as opposed to doing something else like putting higher efficiency filtration in or more ventilation or UV, and it didn't seem to be at the top of the list. So we never really said that it wasn't something that was beneficial, but that if you were going to go for the quickest most significant benefit, there were other things you should do first. It seemed to me like the unwritten theme for the summer camp this year was disasters, epidemics, floods, and wildfires. Yeah, and I think it is good to focus on the fact that the way we design buildings for normal operation leaves us vulnerable to all sorts of things that can happen. We need to bring resilience into our standards as a concept for air quality. We have the idea of resilience in, for example, structural codes and standards. If you're in an earthquake zone, you have to prepare the building for the, a likely earthquake. And if you're in a hurricane zone, now you should be designing a building to resist hurricane force winds. We add wildfires and we add epidemic disease to that. And maybe we can make some preparations so that when those things happen, buildings can gracefully change to a mode of operation that's more protective. I think that's the key. I think it's going to be much harder to change standards for normal operation to get to a level that, for example, will significantly reduce risk of airborne infection transmission. But if we can come up with ways to modify the standards so that they can operate at a level that from an energy and operating cost point of view is acceptable, but then ramp up 
when needed, that probably is more likely to succeed. And this year's summer camp was held, as it always seems to be, at the Westford Regency Hotel. And there were some modifications made to the building. Were you involved in that process, or could you speak towards? Yes. I, you know, I heard from Lou Harriman, who anyone in building science knows very well. And he's been a friend of mine for a long time. And he said, I've been talking with Joe about maybe doing some things to upgrade the classroom at, at summer camp. And I thought that was a great idea and got involved in those discussions. And so we really did most of the things that could be done following ASHRAE's recommendations to that space. You know, it's about a 120 by 58 plan, 14 foot high ceiling space, so pretty good sized. And the first step was to look at the air handling units and verify the outdoor air and put in higher efficiency filters to upgrade from MERV 8 to MERV 13. They found out, interestingly, when they did that, that there was something wrong with the controls and the outdoor air intakes were closed 100% of the time. So that is a lesson that many have learned the hard way is that just because that's what the design document said it was supposed to do doesn't mean that it actually will. So they had to tape the outdoor air intakes open to get the outdoor air in. The filter upgrades were done. And then with the help of Bill Palmer from Aeromed, one of the manufacturers of germicidal UV equipment, we put in upper room UV temporarily. So these were the normal type of fixtures that would be put on the walls of a space like that. But he built some poles that they could be put on and they were installed. And so we had a space that was about as well protected as it could be from the filter upgrades and the UV. And also there were four Corsi Rosenthal boxes that were built for that space. There probably should have been more given the size, but that was done as well. And you may recall, we actually hauled a couple of those back to Joe's house for the after hours because it gets pretty crowded in the band bar area there in the house and in the rooms where they have some seminars after hours. So we made a very strong effort to protect the participants. And as far as I know, there were few or, or no infections that were directly connected to that event, which is amazing considering there were over 400 people there and they were mingling a lot. But then again, keep in mind that when they were outside of, of the protected classroom, most of the stuff that goes on in the evenings is outdoors. Right. Under tents. Which is itself a good idea to do. So these things actually work. Yes. And there's a skill set of yours, which I became aware of one morning there, strolling through the lobby before breakfast. So there's a is it baby grand piano? Yeah, I think it's a six-foot grand. It's not a big one. And you were tickling the keys. Do you want to talk about music and from the engineering mindset? Sure. Well, music has been a passion of mine for a long time. I wouldn't call many things I do passions, but that's one of them. And so I started playing the organ, actually, when I was about 10 years old. Parents took us to church, and I was a Lutheran and brought up in the tradition of all of that wonderful German chorale literature and the German composers like Bach. And so I wanted to play the organ and I took lessons privately for a long time. And then when I was in graduate school, I decided I'd ask the professor at the University of Illinois if he'd take me on as a non-major student. And I asked and he auditioned me and he said, yeah, sure. And after less than a semester of lessons, he asked me how much I was practicing and 
I told him, and he said, well, you know, if you did a little more, you could be an organ major. What do you think? And so I actually, while I was in the middle of my PhD, enrolled as an organ major with the harpsichord minor at the University of Illinois and finished that degree out, played quite a few recitals and married an organist. My wife is one, and we still play together. So I was trained that way, but I got interested in being a better pianist at some point. And now for about the last 10 years, I've been working a lot to get my piano playing in order. And it's coming along. That's tolerable enough that I'll I'd play with folks from summer camp walking around. And I do some in church with my wife as well. Do you ever find that engineering problems flow when you're playing music? Is there anything that happens between your business or your work mind, your scientific mind and your music mind? Yeah, well, I certainly use music sometimes to clear my head. You, know, you get stopped, and it's nice being at home more. I still haven't gone back to campus full-time, so if I really get tired, I can walk upstairs and play for a few minutes, and that really does help to free up the mind at times. I don't do it specifically in the hopes of having great insights, but sometimes they come. And I would say that the one thing I've learned from being a musician is that if you want to be a good performer, while art is part of it, there's also a lot of craft. And there's a lot to systematic practice that really is the key to being a good musician, to learn how to create an effect. You have to know when to use it, but you actually eventually in the process of, I think, a really good musical education as a performer, learn how to break things down to their technical essentials, and then you use that to build up the expression that you want to make as a musician. So I found some things in common between how to be successful in music and how to be successful in a technical field. Same thing. You have to learn your fundamentals, but then you have to learn how to apply them creatively. And I would argue that being an engineer, that being a good engineer goes far beyond being able to do the math that they taught you in school. At some point, you still have to have insights and use intuition and be clever. And then things happen. The Corsi Rosenthal box, maybe that's an example from the pandemic of that kind of serendipity. Somebody had to think of doing that and know this might be something that would be helpful right now. And it's had a huge impact. So I find them very nice, complimentary activities. Very good. So the audience here is usually building performance, HVAC, contractors, technicians. Are there any good resources I could point them towards from our conversation today for understanding better air quality and Sure. Actually, there are a number of them. And you know, we didn't really get to this point that the pandemic has reminded us that indoor air quality has been a, an area that we needed to address better for decades. I've been talking about it for a long time. So with that preface, if you go back and look at what ASHRAE has published in the last decade or so, there was a indoor air quality design guide, which you can download free from the ASHRAE website. I think it's ashrae.org slash IAQ. That was written for of commercial type buildings. There's another one that was written for residential buildings that you have to buy, but it's on the same plan. And the full title of that guide is something like From Design Through Commissioning. So it discusses the whole process of designing and building and delivering a building that is going to work because indoor air quality control can fail at any step in the process. Great design if you don't implement it and if you don't maintain after you've 
constructed it, you're, you're going to have bad indoor air quality. So I would point to those two things as a good start. And even within some of the ASHRAE standards, there are some things about maintenance that are worth reading. It's something that most who read ASHRAE standard 62.1 for ventilation of commercial buildings don't look at, but there's a whole chapter on on O&M in there, another chapter on design. And those chapters are intended to ensure that a building not only is delivering good air quality when it's built, but it tells you how to maintain it as well. And that's frequently ignored. Within the COVID guidance, I think the building readiness guidance at ashray.org slash COVID-19 is really useful because that takes our general principles, the core principles that we've drafted that fit on one page and talks about how you implement it. So how do you check to see what filter efficiency an existing system can handle, or how do you evaluate an energy recovery wheel to determine whether it poses a reentry risk? So a lot of really practical stuff in there and some tools. These are tools for doing clean air delivery rate calculations, adding together filtration and outdoor air and UV, for example. I would say all of those things. I would also look at the EPA's website. The EPA and the Clean Air Act don't give the government regulatory authority over indoor air, but the Office of Radiation and Indoor Air has produced a lot of really good guidance over the years on indoor air quality. They've had a whole schools program for a long time and a residential program. They have a really nice guide on portable air cleaners. So go there and browse around and you'll find a lot of, I think, really practical, useful information. Fantastic. I want to thank you for spending the time with me and I want to give you back some time so you can write some proposals. (laughs) My pleasure. I actually have a couple I'm working on this week. Thank you for making the time to talk. Anything you'd like to leave our listeners with? Any closing thoughts? Indoor air quality is a really important subject that after two years of the pandemic, I think everyone is more aware of than they were before. Making indoor air quality better is a long-term project. We need to change standards. We need to have some policy. So if you think this is important now, be prepared to work for the next five to 10 years to really create change. Otherwise, things could go back to right where they were. I think that's maybe one of the things we learned from the pandemic was that we really had all the answers or most of the answers a long time ago. And where we're falling short is on actually implementing them. And it's really the hardest and most important part. It's turning out to be the case. Very good. Well, thanks again, Bill. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. And I wish you continued good luck and hope you see you again at a, some event or future summer camp. Thanks, Bill. I'm, I'm sure you'll see me at summer camp next year, if not before. Great. Yeah, take care. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Building HVAC Science Podcast. Other trade-related resources and influencers include HVACR School, Zach Ciotta of the HVAC Shop Talk channel and resources, Stephen Reardon, HVAC Reefer Guy, Tool Pros, Service Business Mastery, Quality HVAC, HVAC Overtime, HVACR Videos, HomeDiagnosis.tv, and AC Service Tech, that's Craig Migliaccio. And of course, Jim Bergman and all the things you can learn from MeasureQuick and all the associated work that Jim does out there. 
I also host the Res Talk podcast, where you can learn more about the rapidly expanding world of home energy ratings and all the peripheral topics. I want to thank you for listening. If you have any comments or feedback, just drop me an email, bill at truetechtools.com. The Building HVAC Science Podcast and the production of True Tech Tools Limited. Thanks and take care. We hope to have you back listening again to the Building HVAC Science Podcast. <laughs>